The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning. Tim and I will be quoting this morning from James chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, NIV version. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, for he will pass away like a wildflower. The sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. That's great to uh, hear Tim and Cheryl uh, share the scripture. And I don't know if you noticed, but uh, they said that they're memorizing James. And so I don't know how many takes that took, but uh, <laughs> way to go. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, my name is Terry Jank. I'm one of the pastors, and I get to share the scripture this morning with us. And um, before I do so, I want to just uh, re-underline some of the things that are happening this fall in our church family. And I want to particularly uh, talk about neighborhood groups, which is a program that we kind of highlighted last week. We have a task force that is working on this initiative in our church family. And uh, we, we talked last week about the fact that this past week was all about us uh, phoning uh, various ones of you that uh, we've been praying and thinking about could be really good neighborhood group leaders in your neighborhoods. And uh, I have been delighted with the response uh, that we're getting. And um, we, I think we've made all our calls and we're gonna be following up next week with a call to just see if you've had a chance to pray about it and uh, are willing to serve in this capacity. I actually had an interesting thing happen. I, I had phoned a number and it must have been the wrong number and it, no one answered. And about an hour later, I got a phone call from a guy that said, you called this number and I said, I felt like saying, yeah, I wanted you to be a neighborhood group leader, but I don't know you. <laughs> so no, I didn't, I didn't uh, sign him on. But um, we're, we're delighted with the response and we look forward to it. One of the things that we've been hearing from, the task force has been hearing from people, is that you want to know more detail. And I, I'd love to share more with you. Uh, over the weeks, we're going to definitely be getting into that. But one of the questions has been, well, what are neighborhood groups going to do? And what are the responsibilities of the neighborhood group leaders 
Uh, the last question is going to be addressed on October 4th when we have all the neighborhood group leaders together and we do some training and orientation. But to answer the first question in a, in a simple way in the time that I have, I want you to know that during COVID-19, obviously, no whole neighborhood group is going to likely get together um, very often. And when I say that is that if you're going to get 15 or 20 people together, uh, some of them are going to have varying degrees of comfortability in getting together. Um, but we do want to make this building ab available. Your neighborhood group could come and have a potluck meal here. You could all sign up and come to church and then uh, talk out in the foyer or outside. You could do a backyard barbecue if someone has a big enough space and so on. But more than likely, it's not going to be big group activity right away. Likely, the neighborhood groups are going to be just becoming aware of each other's needs. There's going to be a sense in which the leadership of the neighborhood group is going to help people get connected in that group. And there's going to be many um, relational uh, spark plugs firing. There's going to be people that you get to know that are near you in, in proximity that you'll be able to develop a deeper connection with. In fact, even as we've been making these phone calls, it has been underlined to me just how disconnected we are becoming. I spoke with some people this past week that I have not seen or talked to for months, and I didn't realize some of the critical things that they are facing. And I felt bad about that, you know. Uh, that's the sort of thing that we're going to be addressing with neighborhood groups because when we break the larger family of believers down into smaller groups, we're going to be able to be more in touch. And so, uh, again, it's not trying to replace the, the intensity and intimacy of life groups, but we are trying to include everyone in a group so that we have a, a general care and connection in the body of Christ. So, would you continue to, to pray for us? And as I said last week, uh, last week, this past week, we've been doing those phone calls. This coming week, we're going to be following up and seeing if folks have had a chance to pray about it. On October 4th, we'll do the orientation. And you can expect that in about a month's time or more, uh, you're going to be hearing more from the front here and uh, getting ready to, to actually be engaged in your neighborhood group. So thank you for that uh, opportunity for a bit more of a commercial and... Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about the book of James, and this morning we begin our study on the book of James, and I want you to know that probably I could preach on the book of James every two years, and the sermons would sound similar but different. I mean, it's just incredible how every time I come to a portion of God's Word, uh, the Holy Spirit seems to direct me into certain angles of how to present the Scriptures, yet always, I hope, true to what the Word of God is teaching. And this morning, I know we have a lot bit off. We're not going to get through it all, but I'm going to enjoy the opportunity to talk to you about uh, the purpose for which James writes. Before we do so, would you let me lead us in prayer and ask God's Spirit to help us? Father God, we thank you. We thank you now in the name of Jesus for your word. And uh, we're, we're asking you, Lord, as we open up the book of James this fall, to be able to understand more deeply the kind of journey of faith that you have us on, the very personal discipleship program that you have designed for each one of your children. 
the kinds of trials and testings that have come our way for the sake of developing a robust faith and a faith that has ballast and a faith that can resist the storms of life. God, we pray you would teach us, teach us this. And Lord, we confess that so often our faith is more fragile than robust. That even in spite of maybe some of us walking with you for years and years, we can sometimes resemble more the Corinthian church where Paul said, I I wanted to feed you meat, but you were not ready for it. I had to give you milk. God, we pray that our faith will not be baby faith, but a robust and mature faith. And that as we work through this letter of James, we pray that you will show us how it is that you want to uh, genuinely reflect that faith to the world around us. We ask your blessing on this. And also we would lift up to you this neighborhood groups uh, for our church family. Please uh, give us lift in this. Give us anointing in this. Let your Holy Spirit fill these groups with the real koinonia of Christian caring and fellowship because we, we believe that you're calling us, Lord, to do church and to be church uh, in a different way, not just attending a service, but being the answer for many people's prayers. So, Lord, we ask you to help us in this. We commit to you this service now in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we get into the book of James, I uh, am excited to be able to unpack this book again. We, we addressed it five years ago, <clears throat> and um, this morning I want to start with an introduction of, of who James is, who he's writing, and why he's writing. Let's jump into those questions. The first one is who. There's only four possibilities because there's only four men in the New Testament that are named James. The first James I will mention is the sons of Zebedee, the brother of John, the two sons that uh, Jesus calls the sons of thunder because of their impulsiveness. They were fishermen until Jesus called them away from their nets to follow him. And this this particular James, the, the brother of John, is actually, as far as we know, the first one to be martyred of the 12 apostles. It was in 44 A.D., We can read about it in Acts chapter 12 where Herod took him and killed him. He was the first disciple to be killed. So he is not the author of James, the the letter, because this letter was written around 49 or 50 A.D. and James died in 44 A.D. The second James is the man that's called the son of Alphaeus. He is a disciple as well. And his name uh, is likely a, a brother to the tax collector Levi or Matthew because he also is called a son of Alphaeus and yet really, really little is known about him. And so very unlikely that this James, the son of Alphaeus, is the one who wrote this book or this letter of the New Testament. The third James that I'm going to mention is more obscure yet for he is the father of another disciple whose name is Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas Thaddeus. And he's often called that Judas, not Iscariot, or Judas, Thaddeus, to distinguish him from the one who betrayed Jesus. He is so obscure we hardly know anything about him, it's very unlikely that he is the author of the book of James. And so that leaves just one more James in the New Testament, and he is none other than the very brother, half-brother, of Jesus Christ himself. 
I say half-brother because we know that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit when Mary was a virgin. Jesus is not the son of Joseph, but this man, James, is the son of Joseph and the son of Mary. And we know that, that uh, Jesus grew up with brothers and sisters. We read about it in John 7, 5, though, that none of his brothers believed in him. And that's not hard to understand. I mean, uh, think about it. Uh, uh, James, when he is mentioned in Scripture, by the way, in both Matthew 13 and Mark 6, it mentions that uh, James is the first one of the four brothers that are mentioned and the sisters. And so being mentioned first, every list, means likely that he's the eldest, which means that he was the next in line to Jesus. Okay, so Jesus' kid brother. Now, can you imagine why when Jesus had his earthly ministry for three years, they didn't believe he was the Messiah? I can't, I can understand that. I mean, he's your brother. I mean, he's not God, he's your brother. That's the way it would have come across. How many times did these brothers and sisters hear their parents, Joseph and Mary, say, why can't you be more like Jesus? I mean, that must have happened a lot. Having Jesus as your brother would have been awful. No, it would have been awful. It would have been great. (laughs) He probably did a few things on the side for you that no other brother could do. But the amazing thing is is that when we open the Bible in the book of Acts, for all these brothers and sisters that did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry, we read that after the resurrection, they are the ones, along with the apostles, in that room in Acts chapter 1, praying after the resurrection, after the ascension. What changed? Paul, the apostle, gives us a clue In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, he says that when Jesus appeared after the resurrection, he says this, he appeared to James and then to the apostles. Can you imagine? He appeared to his brother, James, and then to the apostles after the resurrection. And so I think that it is this very event that caused James to become a believer in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Messiah. James went on to be an incredible leader in the church in Jerusalem. Paul calls him a pillar of the church, Galatians 2.9. In Acts 15, when we see this church council being moderated, guess who's moderating it? James, the elder, this man in Jerusalem church. And when Peter is delivered from prison. He sends a message to the house of James. When Paul comes to Jerusalem with an offering to offer from other churches that have been gathered, where does he go? He goes to James. James is a key leader in the church in Jerusalem. Now, there's no record in the Bible about his death, but tradition tells us that he died as a martyr as well in 62 A.D., and it's interesting because some of the early historians of the Christian faith give some nicknames to James, which I think is very interesting. One of them is James the Just. Another one is a Greek name called Oblius, which is a Greek term that means the bulwark of the people. He was kind of like this rock in the church. And the one that I like most, it comes from a second century historian named Hegesippus. And he calls James Old Camel Knees. 
And the reason he says that is because, according to history, the reputation that has been passed on to the second century about James is that he spent so much time in the temple on his knees that his knees began to be hardened like that of a a camel. (laughs) And so that's James, the brother, half-brother of Jesus, the author of this book that we're going to be studying. But what about his audience? Who is he writing to? As much as we want to receive it and apply it to our own lives, he wasn't writing to us. Who was he writing to? He says it in verse 1. He says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Jesus is mainly writing to the Jewish Christians that had been scattered abroad by the persecution that came with the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. You can read about it in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And so James is, is, the, this, is leader in the church in Jerusalem, and, and the people that he was shepherding like a pastor have all been scattered. And now he's concerned about their well-being. He's wondering how they're doing. They've gone to places. They're going, they're facing a lot of struggle. And so he writes this letter to them. He's writing to them. He's writing in the hope that just as seed is scattered across a field and starts to grow, just as that, God's intent is that this group of people were scattered through persecution in Jerusalem, and they're meant to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and see the church grow everywhere it's spread. James is writing this group of people. And if I could just pause for a moment to say that this is part of the very relevance of why we're preaching through this letter this fall. Because we too, as a church, has been scattered in a sort of way. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused us to not be able to meet as we have been in the habit of meeting. We are scattered abroad, and as pastors in our church, we're wondering, how's everybody doing? And of course, some people were in touch with more and others less. And how are we to care for the flock? And how are we to know how everybody's faith is doing? How are people interconnected? We don't know in many cases. And so neighborhood groups is one way of us addressing this need. We need to learn to be church in a new way and not just see it as something we attend. We need to be church for each other. We need to care in community. We need to belong and have a sense of belonging to each other. And so the relevance of this book, I believe, is very much part of why we're going through this letter this fall. The Christians that James is writing have faced hard times. You need to know that. Wherever they went, they were being rejected by the Gentile peoples because they were Jews, and they were being rejected by the Jewish people because they were Christian Jews. Do you get that? Here here is a group of people that are caught in the middle. Uh, They can't turn one way or the other. They're caught in the middle of circumstances beyond their control. Maybe you feel like that a little bit this morning. They have been evicted from their homes like refugees in foreign lands. They have found themselves difficulty finding faith in their community. If you know a refugee family, will you love on them? Because as we study James, we're addressing issues that they face, especially if they are believers in Jesus. 
It's not easy. So why is James writing this letter? Why is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the elder in the church in Jerusalem, writing the scattered group of Jewish believers that used to live in Jerusalem? He is writing them. I believe the answer comes in the very first few verses. When he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces, ESV says, steadfastness. The NIV says, uh, endurance or perseverance. And then he says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. The first readers of this letter of James were facing trials of many kinds, various kinds, multicolored trials. Do you know what trials of many kinds means? It means trials of many kinds. (laughs) You don't need to be a Greek expert to understand what he's talking about here. Relational trials, financial trials, family trials, ethical trials, moral trials, every kind of trial, various kinds, they're facing it. And uh, he's, he's addressing this because he wants them to pass the test. Some of them were being ensnared into worldly pursuits. Some of them were so timid about their faith that they weren't even known as Christians. Some of them were showing partiality to certain people and favoring others. Some of them were actually falling into sin. And the faith that God had borne into them through knowing Jesus Christ is now in danger of being just watered down and compromised. And so he's writing. In fact, the reason that we chose a tree as the image of this sermon series for James, is that the tree that is in this picture is being reflected in the water ahead of it. In fact, if you take your bulletin, you'll notice that you can turn that upside down and not tell which way, which way is the reflection and which way is the real thing. You see, that's the goal of our faith. The goal of our faith is that the genuine life of Christ that has been born into you, that is there by the presence of the Holy Spirit, could be so real, so authentic, so growing in you that people around you will want to lift their eyes higher and see the Jesus that you're following, the Jesus that you're reflecting, the Jesus of truth. The way he treats people different than him. The way he loves on people that hate him. The way that he is honest all the time. The truth of Jesus will be seen in us. That's what James is writing all about. You know, I I think sometimes my reflection of Jesus is a, a ripply pond. It's kind of a warped view. Kind of a disturbed and contorted and troubled waters view. Instead of a consistent and true view. So that's why we're studying James, folks. We're studying James because we want to reflect Jesus. And that's the purpose of this book. That's the purpose of this. James is writing to encourage the believers to remain steadfast through various kinds of faith tests and trials. And you'll notice in the insert in your bulletin um, the yellow piece of paper. It's also on our webpage. You can follow along in our notes there, and on the back you can see a whole bunch of questions that you can go further and deeper on. And uh, that's going to be basis for the Tuesday and Thursday evening discussion groups on the sermon series. If you'll join us here on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7, you can go deeper with that. So the goal of our faith is to pass these tests. 
Let me make some observations, and I want to thank Kathy Lakin for mentioning last week that this text that we're looking at today was a formative text in her spiritual journey, and I think that might apply to some of you as you listen to it rehashed this morning. He begins then with the words, my brethren, and this is a different translation, but I like it. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Some translations say when you meet them or when you face them. But the word is peripipto, which means to fall into them. It means actually peripipto, peri around and fall into. You're falling into things that are all around you. In other words, you can't avoid them. He doesn't say consider it pure joy if you fall into trials of many kinds. He's saying when you fall into trials of many kinds. You will not go through this life without falling into trials. Things that are going to come against you that are going to test your faith. You can't do it. When I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but go back in my, my mind to a time in, our, in, in 2008, I think was the year, when we visited Bolivia. And, uh, we, sorry, we visited a, a town in Bolivia called Toro Toro, our, our children and us. And, and um, we went in and visited caves. And this is the picture of a cave that we entered and looking back. Because once we got in, it was pitch black darkness. You couldn't see the hand in front of your face. You had flashlights, and you had to use those flashlights because you walked on these precipices that right next to your feet, maybe two, uh, two feet over, were, was a, a complete drop. You had to be careful how you walked. And uh, Jonathan looked a little different back then. There's Joel down. I think he's cleaning bat poop off of his shoes right there. And uh, Pat really enjoyed the <laughs> crawling through different places as well. <laughs> and, uh, but you could find incredible places where in these caves, you, at one point we had to get down on our bellies and crawl through an area. And in another place, you'd open up into a huge cavern that was maybe 50 feet high. I just thought about the, 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 the you couldn't avoid having these. They were all around us, these drop-offs and crevices. And, and to me, I think that James is teaching that we're going to face all kinds of trials in this world, in this life. When you do them, when you face them, don't be surprised. Peter says that. First Peter 4.12, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. <laughs> This isn't strange. This is normal Christian living. You're going to face trials. And as we face these trials, there's a key word that James uses in these first verses that reminds us of how to endure them. And the word is hupomone in Greek. It means, it means literally to stand under it. Hupomone. Steadfast endurance steadfastness. It means that somehow something has been placed over you and you're meant to stand under it for as long as it's, un, it's over you. And, and God will not let one minute pass beyond what you're meant to endure, but in that time, he will take it off in his due time. 
He will give you a way out. But in the meantime, your job is hupomone. He uses it in two ways, and I want to share with you those two ways this morning. Having hupomone, or steadfast, patient endurance, yields a reward for this life, and it yields a reward for the life to come as well. And the first reward in this life is found in verses 2 to 4. And the first is that simply your faith will mature. If you will just stay under what God has put upon you or what circumstance has put upon you, and, and you will learn the lesson that that alone can teach you, you will develop a mature faith. Now this is not the, the kind of, he says that you're going to be uh, com- complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. That's not a moral perfection. That's just talking about a, com- a completely mature faith. A mature faith does not mean that you're, you're perfectly sinless in this world. A mature faith means that you're going to face all kinds of trials, but you're going to overcome them, and you're going to persevere and learn the lessons that God has for you in them. The goal of any living organism is maturity, and our faith is a living trust in a living God. And so every day when we face trials, big or small, the perseverance, the standing under it, the learning from it is part of our discipleship. If you persevere, your faith will mature, and if you don't, it won't. That's why we can find Christians that are in their 60s or 70s or more, and yet they've got a baby faith. Like the Corinthians when Paul wrote and said, I had to, had to give you milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. Because somehow when they got into these trials of many kinds, and instead of standing under it for as, for as long as God allowed it, they somehow took an out. They took an out or they, or they, uh, they caved in. They sinned maybe. They gave in to temptation. And so the first, the first benefit is that your faith will mature. A second one is that your wisdom will be from God instead of from you. James writes, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously. Let him ask in faith without doubting. The person that doubts is supposed, will, cannot suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It is meant to be an encouragement to your faith and a reward for persevering when you go and you ask God for wisdom. And then you listen and you watch how he's going to respond, how he's going to give you wisdom from him on how to deal with this trial. Have you ever had that? If you've walked with Jesus long enough, you will, you'll know the folly of leaning on your own wisdom. And you'll know the wisdom of getting it from God. Chapter 3 James is going to be talking about wisdom that comes from above, which is pure and peaceable and gentle and open to, full of mercy, open to rebuke and so on. It, that's the wisdom that comes from a God. From God, it, it brings a stability to your life. That's the next point, is that your life will have stability if you have that kind of wisdom. You know, sometimes when people are talking about persevering, really they're just talking about their own stubbornness. And a stubborn person is not a double-minded person, but neither does he have the mind of Christ. Let's not confuse the two, our own stubbornness with persevering. And, And James is saying here that the person that James is talking about, just remember this, the person that James is talking about in these verses 
is the one who has a genuine faith in Jesus. They're going through a trial that's testing their faith, whatever it is. They're asking God for wisdom in the middle of that trial. And and since they're playing the faith card, the prayer card, they're saying, God, I want your wisdom. I'm not going to just duck out on my wisdom. I want your wisdom. This, what James is saying is if you go into that and then you start to doubt God and then you start to question God and then you hear God's answer and you say, well, I don't know, I don't know God. I think, I think I'm, I'm going to follow this road instead. Well, then James is talking to that person. He's saying that person is an unstable person, double-minded, and he's going to be unstable in all he does. You can't live both worlds. One foot in each is the most unstable place to be, James is saying. So either you, you ask God for wisdom and you, you surrender your own will before you ask for his. That's what, God, that's what James is saying. Surrender your own will before you ask God for his and his wisdom. Don't be double-minded. You're going to be unstable. The picture here is, is, a, is a, a, an animal like a donkey that is standing between two piles of food, hay, and he dies in the middle because he doesn't know which one to, to choose. Don't be unstable. And uh, there's no li- life worse than the foot, one foot in each place. Jesus said it in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. He'll either love the one and cling to, cling to them or cling to the other. You cannot serve both. And so the reward for having a single-minded faith the reward for persevering under what God has allowed you to go through, the reward for asking him and depending on him and not your own wisdom, the reward is a stability in your life. Like ballast. I was reading about ballast this past week. I didn't realize that ballast is used in everything from farm tractors to race cars. Ballast is used in motorcycles and sailboats. It used to be that in the old ancient days, they had to use hard metal under the ships to keep the ballast. Now, of course, in these big ocean liners, they'll combine fuel and seawater just to keep it exactly what they need. And did you know that the ballast of these big ships can be up to 30% of their entire weight? Keeping that weight in the center and down as low as possible so that it will not be tipping over. You see, your life, your faith, is meant to be the ballast of your life. It's meant to be such an enormous part that's kept you grounded, kept you centered, kept you from tipping over, from being rocked here and there by every kind of wind. Our lives need ballast. Jesus provides ballast ballast. I don't know what you're facing this morning as we talk about this theme. You could be going through a terrible controversy with your spouse. You could be facing a real division with you and a family member. You might be facing something with your children and it's ripping your heart apart. You might have gone into a business relationship and it's gone bad for you. You have something facing and it's an ethical dilemma a moral choice that stands in front of you. And it's going to cost you to make the right choice. 
You could be faced with a decision about your employment going forward, and you're not sure which one to choose. Go to God. Go to God seriously, laying it before him, surrendering your will so that you can pursue his. He'll make it clear. He will. And then when you ask, don't doubt. Don't doubt he's going to answer you because he loves you. He cares for you. You're the apple of his eye. And if he's your father, your heavenly father, any problem you have as his child is his problem. And then finally, in this first part, your mortality will not shake you. In verses 9 to 11, James goes into a very interesting part of this scripture. You might wonder, why did he jump ship and starts talking about the rich and the poor when he's been talking about trials of many kinds? (laughs) That's because a lot of trials are economically oriented. He says that the rich and the poor in spite of their riches, we're all going to be like flowers of the grass that pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, its flowers fall, the beauty perishes, and so also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. COVID-19 does not check your income tax return. The rich and the poor will die from it. And yet... We can buy our way out of trials. Some of them. Don't ever think this is a level playing field, folks. We can buy our way out of some of the trials we face. I mean, I just thank the Lord that we were able to contribute some money to the pastors that we met in Bolivia six months ago and the seminary students that we worked with six months ago. But I know some of them that have COVID-19. And at the beginning of the pandemic, when it faced Bolivia, four days after our team left Bolivia, there were hospitals that said, we won't take you. There were people that drove around Cochabamba looking for somewhere to go and finally took their loved one home and they died. And the municipality didn't even have the means The morgue was going full tilt with cremations. They could not keep up. You see, folks, we we don't face that. We have resources. We have infrastructure. Some of the trials that we face, we can buy our way out of them. I had a root canal this past week. And I sat in the chair thinking about some of the folks that I could know in developed nations around this world that when they face a root canal, they're going to go through severe pain and eventually they're going to probably have a very crude pull. Just pull that thing out of there and deal with the consequences. James is writing in these opening words and including paragraph verses 9 to 11. Why? Because a lot of our trials are economically driven. And yet, he says, in the end, rich and poor are going to die. These people that he was writing had been displaced from their home in Jerusalem. 
They were not well off. They had to leave their belongings behind. They were not welcomed where they arrived. They looked around and they saw a carefree attitude of the rich. And James is saying, don't worry. One day, everyone's going to pass through the same tunnel of death. And you can't take it with you. There's not a level playing field, is there? On this, in this world, there, there isn't. We start out, we all start out in a certain family or not. You know, there are people in this world don't start out in families. And we all receive a certain lo- level of love and care or not. A lot of children grow up not having love and care. And then we all get nurtured and educated properly or not. Because there's a lot of people that don't get nurtured and educated properly. And then we somehow develop this sense of esteem and confidence because mom and dad loved us and we're able to actually go out and and get educated and choose a career or not. Folks, you know where this is going? It's going to say there's no level playing field. Don't think that way. We have have nots and haves in this world. James is saying they're all going to perish. And some of us will face different trials on this world, in this world because of economics. But in the end, the haves and the have-nots and everybody in between the haves and the have-nots are all going to fade away like the grass. Have you noticed your flowers are fading away? And the fact is, is that if you persevere, if you develop this upomone in your faith, this steadfast endurance... James is saying, your mortality does not need to shake you. Doesn't need to shake you. You will not be defined by the trials you face, regardless of your income. Your faith is secure and solid. You have ballast in your life. And you will survive. The second half of the message, I'm going to just skip over real quickly that we have this, this verse, this, this word, upomone, is used a second time by James in verse 12. And he talks about that this, this steadfast endurance is meant to give you not only these rewards in this life, but also in the life to come. The first one he mentions is that you're going to have a crown of life, verse 12. And this idea of the crown of life is an actually interesting word. It, archaeologists, when they, had, when they find... Uh, in the digs they do when they find things they'll find on a piece of pottery for example something that is an indication of being approved or not approved it's the greek word dokimos or adokimos and the idea was that when something was tried with fire a piece of pottery was well baked in the oven and then it came out and, and examined in the light and so on it was given the stamp of approval and then if something came out and it didn't go through the oven well and it wasn't, it was cracked somehow, it was given a different stamp and it was called adokimos, which was the, the, the non-approved kind of piece of pottery. And archaeologists are finding both. And, and, and James is saying, you know what, when, when you go through all these tests and trials and that your faith is being tested in, God's going to give you the crown of life. It's, it's the sign that you've been approved. By the grace of God, you've endured. 
Your destiny will not be the fruit of your own desires, I say here, and James says in verses 13 to 16, and your life will reflect the genuine faith you were born into. John White uses a good illustration of a piano and how uh, if, if, if we were to go over to the piano here and I was to push the sustain button and hum a note, the piano would, would uh, that string of that note would, would, would vibrate. And I love the way John White says in his book called The Fight, he says that that's what the devil does. The devil hums a note and it resonates in your heart. There's, there's a fallenness, there's a sinfulness that each of us have. We can be lured, we can be tempted. And uh, we just need to stand firm. We just need to be persevering and resist the sin that comes knocking at our door. And the Lord will give you grace. Martin Luther said, you cannot stop birds from flying over your head, but you sure can prevent them from building a nest in your hair. Some of you would have a hard time if you don't have a lot of hair, but, uh, and so. How do we conclude this? I want to just conclude, and I want to ask the worship team to, to join me at the front. I want to just tell you, to, to encourage you, that the Lord Jesus is with you in every trial that you face. The Lord Jesus is the one. It says in the scriptures that, in Hebrews 2.18, Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted when he was tested, same word, and he is able to help those who are being tempted or tested. Isn't that wonderful to know that because Jesus faced many of the same things that we face, he's able to help you. Second Thessalonians chapter three, Paul is praying for the church there and he says, the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you. He will protect you from the evil one. You need to know that the Almighty God is in your corner when you face this trial that you're facing. He can give you wisdom. He can give you perspective. He can give you ballast in your life. And in that same passage in 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul says, and may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love, and then I love this last part, and Christ's perseverance. Christ's upomone. Let him be your sustaining grace. Let him be your perseverance. Come up against the wall and say, Lord, I'm not, I'm not up for the task. But Lord, you be. You be my perseverance. And he will meet you. Amen. Lord, right now my heart's in a few different places. And for some of us, our hearts are in a few different places as we think about things in our life and as we think about relationships and family and as we think about our circumstances. And I just pray, God, that you just meet us where we are. I pray that you would be our perseverance. I pray that we would look at everything that you allow and that we would have hearts that are grateful because of how you are going to be faithful in those things. And we thank you, Lord, that we have the promise of your love and we have the promise of the crown of glory. And I thank you, Lord, that we never, ever, ever have to be without you, not now and not forever. I thank you that that's true. And I pray that you would just bless us as we go from here and that you would be the ballast that we 
that we require, and I pray that you would move our hearts to keep looking for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.